Good afternoon. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. I'm joined today by Jorge Fascinetti, and we're going to talk about the coronavirus outbreak. A number of folks, including family, friends, and patients, have asked me for my take on this matter. And uh, although I'm not an infectious disease specialist or an epidemiologist as a physician, I'm certainly keeping up with what's going on and trying to keep things in perspective, and we'll share some of those perspectives with you today. Jorge, thanks for joining me. Uh, so what do you think about this outbreak? Well, hi, yes, uh, good to be with you for this discussion. Uh, what do I think? Well, it definitely gets your attention. I know you and I have been talking about it, and I've been talking about it with my family and friends. Uh, so it's definitely in the news, <laughs> to, for an understatement. Uh, and I've also been looking at the CDC site and other statistics online, and it certainly sounds like this could be a very worrisome situation if it gets a hold of the population, particularly the more at-risk population. So sounds to me like we're talking about the, uh, or at least taking the right precautions to slow the rates of infection down until um, the authorities can, can get an idea of what it's going to take to get some effective, effective therapeutics or eventually a vaccine. So why don't we talk a little about the about the data? What do what do we know so far? Well, we know a lot, but I'm not sure we have the entire story or the or the whole picture. Uh, the data that we have have largely been uh, related to countries and their health departments reporting to a central clearinghouse. Uh, most countries have their own. Uh, disease control units or centers, just as we have our Center for Disease Control that's based in Atlanta. Uh, and uh, obviously this information is shared with the world. Um, there are several sites online where you can get the information about what's going on around the world. The one that I like to use is Worldometer. If you type in Worldometer coronavirus on Google search, you'll get that bit of information. And I think this is... Um, I wouldn't say the tip of the iceberg, but maybe part of the iceberg. It probably represents just a proportion, an unknown proportion of the actual cases and deaths reported to date. Um, I looked at this just about an hour or so ago, and there are now over 90,000 reported uh, infected persons. Uh, there are at least 3,087 deaths. Uh, probably about half of those who've had the illness have so-called recovered, whatever that means, with this particular virus. Um, if you look at the cases that have an outcome where there's either been recovery or death, it looks like the death rate is about 6%. Um, if you look at those patients who have the active infection, uh, about 20% are classified as either having serious or critical illness. So those are staggering numbers uh, for uh, an illness of this type that's early in its course. So this is really interesting data. And yes, that Worldometer uh, website is really fascinating. Uh, so let's talk about how uh, does this compare with um, an influenza infection? Um, there was a report that came out at the end of January, I believe it was, that uh, I think had its origin at the Centers for Diseases Control in Atlanta. 
and they stated that there had been 15 million cases of influenza this season with a, about 8,200 deaths. So clearly more people to date this year have died in the United States of influenza than have died in the world due to coronavirus. Uh, and when you think about that, a lot of people don't get their flu shots. Uh, and uh, many people did get their flu shots and uh, probably still got the flu or succumbed to it because the vaccination or the, the flu shot, as they call it, is somewhat predictive or a guess of, of what strains of the flu might be around. Uh, it's interesting if you look at measles, which fortunately we don't see a lot of in this day and age because... Uh, of vaccination programs. However, there has been a resurgence of this uh, illness because uh, some people are anti-vaccine, uh, but we see a, uh, a death rate of measles of 15%, which is even higher than what this coronavirus has illustrated so far. Well, that whole issue about people not vaccinating their kids against the measles is just a complete lunacy. So I guess that's completely different, uh, uh, you know, situation here and worthy probably of a, its own podcast. Uh, but um, what are your thoughts on a vaccine for this coronavirus? I know that the Trump administration, I think, is pushing the pharmaceutical companies to develop one. So what are your thoughts? Well, I have mixed feelings about it. One, I think that uh, it's difficult to develop vaccines for some viral infections. And this is because the virus is always mutating. It's changing its surface proteins. And some of those surface proteins are the ones that antibodies that our bodies would develop in response to the vaccine would be targeted against. So it's likely that by the time we get a vaccine for this coronavirus, uh, that uh, virus will be a different virus and wouldn't respond uh, to the uh, antibodies that we would generate in response to having an infection. So I'm less than optimistic. Um, most people don't know this, but we've all had coronaviruses. Probably the most common cause of a late summer cold is a coronavirus, and they're fairly common in society. Most everyone's had one or more infections in their lifetime, probably. And I think that if we could develop vaccines for these viruses, we would have cured the common cold a long time ago. Uh, and that somewhat worries me about uh, the prospect of developing a vaccine for this particular illness. It certainly looks like it's taken hold in the U.S. with the six cases in Seattle. I think it's six deaths in Seattle. And uh, the cases in the U.S. Uh, really doubling the last couple of days. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle had, uh, in today's paper, 43 confirmed cases in California, 26 of those in the Bay Area. And what's really surprising, this number, 8,700 Californians in self-quarantine. Uh, so it sounds like it's really taken hold. Um, where do you think this is going? Jorge, those are important uh, observations that you've made. And I think this... Uh, disorder is indeed starting to take hold and we're going to see a rapid uptick in the number of cases throughout the United States. Uh, we'll probably need three, four, five weeks to see what the spread is going to be like. Uh, one study showed an approximate doubling in the community every seven days. So I think the next month and a half, two months is going to be very important to see uh, where this thing is going in the United States. 
Well, what's interesting to me is that uh, cases in Italy seem to be skyrocketing. Uh, is, that's interesting, no? Yes, you're you're right. Uh, Italy has seen a dramatic increase in the number of cases in the past uh, week. Uh, they're now reporting over 2,000 cases with about 49% of those patients hospitalized. Of those where there has been an outcome with either resolution or death, 26% of people have died. Uh, if you take a look at Iran, uh, the uh, death rate there uh, of uh, cases where there's been a, a definite outcome uh, is about 18%. So let's talk about the uh, who is at risk uh, of dying and why do you think people are uh, dying from this illness? Most people are actually contracting a viral pneumonia, which can be rather severe. Uh, I've seen CT scans of patients who had uh, uh, the mnemonic complications of this illness and their lungs are, are remarkably uh, affected by this particular disorder. And these patients end up dying of respiratory failure and shock uh, and, and um, multi-system uh, organ failure. Those individuals who seem to be at risk for death uh, due to this COVID-19 infection, as they're calling it, are the elderly, uh, those with pre-existing conditions like cardiovascular disease, diabetes mellitus, respiratory illnesses, and hypertension. Uh, however, it has been reported that death has occurred in some otherwise young, healthy people as well. So I think a lot of that depends on uh, not only the infection uh, and the degree of infection in your lung, but also your immune response to it. Uh, steroids may help, but steroids uh, as well might worsen it. There's some evidence that maybe impaired uh, responses to infection um, will uh, worsen the condition, but it's also there's also some evidence that steroid therapy might make that condition worse. There's been some interesting statistics out of China where uh, in Wuhan, it's like a death rate of 4.9%, but in, in, and I can't pronounce this, but the Hubei prominence, uh, it's 3.1%, and nationwide, it's only 2.1%. And uh, there's been uh, curiosity over this matter, and some experts have said that it relates to the uh, rapidity, rapidity of diagnosis, the access to health care, and the sophistication of health care. Uh, so that those factors and the way the healthcare system responds to the illness may actually uh, be associated with the mortality figures. Um, the uh, inference being that if you have good healthcare and, and resources, you might be able to actually help a patient fight this particular illness. Well, obviously, resources are critical in these types of uh, situations. Uh, but what about recovery? I read that there were some people that, that uh, or a per one person that recovered and then uh, reinfected. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yes, that's true. Um, there have been several people, including one today, who uh, tested positive, were sick, and then were asymptomatic and tested negative, and then uh, tests were positive a week or so later or days later, whatever. Uh, I know of one case that I read about of a person who had that uh, scenario who then presented with symptoms of pneumonia and uh, signs of pneumonia and clearly a, a rapidly progressive uh, 
uh, lung infection, even though they were thought to have recovered from the illness. So I don't know if these are situations where the testing is not that sensitive or whether the virus was latent and then reactivated, uh, whether it wasn't fully cleared, whether it was a reinfection. We just don't know enough yet about this virus to know precisely uh, what's going on in these patients. Well, I guess you're right. I mean, it's so early and we really don't know uh, enough about it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, signs and symptoms. What, uh, what are the people that are uh, showing at these um, healthcare facilities? Uh, what are their symptoms? It seems clear that fever is probably the most common symptom. Temperatures can even exceed 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, many patients have a dry cough, uh, and within a week they can progress to significant shortness of breath and even respiratory failure. Uh, in one study out of China, um, the onset of shortness of breath after the onset of symptoms was as, as soon as five days, with patients developing respiratory failure as, as quickly as eight days after uh, their fever had developed. The other symptom that seems to be fairly common in addition to the fever, the dry cough and the shortness of breath are myalgias, and which are basically just body aches as we know it. What's interesting is only about 19% of patients have uh, a sputum production with their cough. So this seems to be this dry, non-congested cough. And only about 5% have symptoms of the cold uh, with sneezing and runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, etc. Sore throats, not that common as a, uh, as a symptom in these patients. However, these upper respiratory symptoms that we all associate with the cold are common in other different types of coronaviruses. It sounds like uh, what I was reading was that there, there's, um, the symptoms don't appear for a while and um, you know that people are asymptomatic. So how long after exposure does does these uh, symptoms uh, show? It seems that the average uh, incubation time is probably about two weeks. It has been reported as short as two days and as long as about three weeks. Uh, but generally speaking, most of the time, I think uh, 10 to 14 days is what the authorities are recognizing in patients. But who knows how long uh, it was from exposure in a number of these cases. They understand in some patients because a, a spouse or some other person uh, was uh, infected and they can trace that to the time of the symptomatology. But the real problem with this virus is that you're infected and you're even transmitting it to other people before you even get symptoms of being sick yourself. Uh, so this is different than a lot of other respiratory viruses. And you have this virus and you're shedding it and it's entering the population before you even get your first symptoms. So we really don't know what the incubation period of this virus would be. I can see why this is going to be difficult to track, uh, follow and, and really treat. Um, are there any specific treatments for the virus? Unfortunately, not at this time. Obviously, we've talked about the vaccine issue. Uh, I believe there have been a couple people at a, a site in Nebraska where patients were quarantined who had the infection, where they treated with uh, antiviral medications. And I remember seeing something in the news about a week ago where one patient was showing some improvement. 
I'm sure that uh, those who are uh, on the front lines, so to speak, are evaluating all possible drugs against this virus. Uh, but I haven't seen anything specific about a particular drug that's come across as highly recommended if a patient does get this infection. So what we know is that the key to successful treatment are anti-inflammatories, pain medications, uh, and treat the symptoms. I haven't seen anything about whether treating the cough makes things better or worse. Sometimes when a patient has a bacterial pneumonia, you don't necessarily want to treat the cough because you want them to be able to bring up the sputum and help clear the bacteria that way. But uh, I haven't seen any recommendations on that. So I'd have to say in general, supportive care uh, to improve symptoms uh, is the most appropriate management, as seems to be the case with most of the colds and flus that we do uh, uh, experience throughout our lives. This is probably going to sound like one of those obvious statements, I'm sure. Uh, but it seems to me that the most important way to control this uh, and manage it is to not get it <laughs> and not catch it in the first place. And uh, obviously the best way to avoid spreading it to others. So do you have any recommendations on how to increase the odds of not catching it? Well, first and foremost, I think that if you're sick, uh, th there are a couple of things you can do. One is call your health department or your physician or the emergency room and let them arrange for testing. They're probably going to tell you to stay put unless you're critically ill. And um, they may even send someone to your home to do the testing uh, and to talk to you about isolation procedures. Uh, so this is critical so that you don't expose other people on your way to the hospital, checking in at the front desk, in the parking lot, etc. Uh, so first and foremost, call somebody and ask what to do. Um, obviously, if you're critically ill uh, and someone has to take you to the hospital in an emergency, you need to show up uh, announcing yourself as a potential coronavirus patient before uh uh, you start exposing staff so that the staff can uh, take appropriate precautions uh, to prevent themselves from becoming infected. So that's going to limit others getting infected as well. I think that um, the things that all of us can do to limit our opportunity of getting this uh, virus is to wash our hands frequently, probably five to seven times a day, if not more, for 20 seconds with soap and water. Uh, after you're touching doors, whether they be bathroom doors or doors to the entry of buildings, etc. cetera, um, when you're working on desks or, or other surfaces that are shared by other people. This is important because I read somewhere where this virus might live for as many as nine days on surfaces without dying. And thus, there's the potential to pick this virus up as a result of uh, coming in contact with it on, a, on an inanimate object where someone with the virus has shed virus. So washing hands regularly and frequently, probably avoiding handshakes and other physical contact, those sorts of things, I think, are the main things that we can do to limit exposure uh, to ourselves. I would also think hand sanitizers would be pretty helpful in keeping your hands clean. 
absolutely. Another thing is to spend less time touching your your face. Uh, we always touch our face. You know, you scratch your eye, you rub your nose, or what have you. And if you have the virus on your hands, you're going to transmit it to your respiratory tract through that matter. What about wearing masks? Obviously, masks would prevent you from inhaling a virus if someone near you had coughed uh, and extruded that virus from their body into the air. The problem is that uh, you're going to get the virus particles on your mask, or they may be on your face. And then when you take the mask off, you risk getting it in your eyes or in your mouth or on your nose. Uh, Or you may have the viral particles on your mouth and reach up to sort of scratch your cheek rub your lips, whatever, uh, and then you can get it there. So I I don't think masks are really going to help with this particular uh, infection. And I know that the CDC, they really haven't said why, but they don't recommend the use of masks either. Um, I think it's best to leave the masks for the healthcare providers who are going to be needing these masks to um, avoid inhaling the virus in people with active pneumonia. I'm going to assume that being in large uh, crowds, tight spaces with lots of other people is probably not the best idea at this stage. I don't know what to say about that. I'm concerned about the huge outbreak in South Korea that was related to uh, or had its sort of genesis in the church uh, and the virus rapidly spread from there. It seems that if the virus is in a community, you might want to stay away from large crowds and large events, whether they be soccer games or uh, concerts. Uh, I I just can't recommend if the virus is in a community and there's an outbreak and we don't know what's going to happen, that that you uh, live your life um, as you normally would and attend these large events in contact with lots of other people. But nobody really knows. I'm a believer in living your life and accepting whatever the consequences might be, but um, I think we all have a responsibility here to uh, make sure that if we are sick, uh, that we don't spread that illness to other people and stay home from work and school or what have you and uh, quarantine ourselves probably for three to four weeks, not the two weeks that's been recommended. Uh, but uh, also, we're responsibility to ourselves to avoid situations where we might contract the virus uh, and to do those things uh, that we talked about, the hand washing, uh, using the sanitizer, as you mentioned, um, and uh, covering our coughs uh, so that we don't uh, transmit that virus to other people. Well, as you can probably imagine and know, you hear a lot of commentary and opinion from experts, and it's interesting to note that everybody hears sometimes something different from the same person. So I'm wondering, what are you hearing from the experts? I say, well, the experts are careful. some of them have said, obviously, that you know this might be something that we're done with shortly. Uh, it might be a seasonal viral thing. Others are predicting that this might be here to stay for a while. Um, some are suggesting that we'll have a global pandemic where there'll be a great proportion of people around the world infected. Uh, one estimated that 40 to 70% of the world might become infected. Others have felt that's not likely. 
but uh, I think we just don't know enough yet about this virus to know what's going to happen. Um, when I think about those things that we do in life, whether it be driving a car, flying a plane, uh, sailing a boat, um, climbing a mountain or whatever, we're, we, we, we focus some bit of our uh, skill sets on preparedness and dealing with uh, adverse events and happenstances. And uh, if you will, you could say expect the worst and know how to deal with it. And while I try to be optimistic and like to think that this is not going to get out of hand, uh, I think that we have to um, be prepared for the worst and recognize that our lives may change uh, for a for a short while, maybe a long while, uh, and um, at the moment, uh, the uh, Centers for Disease Control and the similar bodies in other uh, countries and investigators and providers and experts in the field uh, are working to learn as much as is possible about this virus, so that we can. Um, have the best chance of limiting morbidity and mortality. Well, maybe to end on a positive note, uh, I know that the SARS and MERS uh, were coronavirus infections and were pretty fatal, and those viruses have all but disappeared. So we can only hope that this will be true for this COVID-19 virus as well. Yes, Jorge, let's uh, encourage everyone to do their due diligence to uh, limit your uh, likelihood of contracting this illness, and if you do, to limit the exposure to others, regardless of how difficult it might make life uh, in a uh, uh, short period of time. I think we can all tolerate anything for a brief period. Uh, and uh, the notion of uh, quarantining for three or four weeks, uh, while it sounds terrible, uh, it'll be over soon enough. And, uh, and it's conceivable that you can do all sorts of things to uh, prepare yourself for such. So once again, this is uh, Dr. Lewis Blevins with Jorge Fascinetti of uh, Pituitary World News. Um, podcasting uh, on the coronavirus outbreak. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Blevins, for your time and comments. And uh, thank you all for listening. And if you have any questions or comments on this podcast or any other podcast from Pituitary World News, please send us a note through our website or, or contact us through our social media channels. Again, this is Jorge Fascinetti. Thank you for listening.